my name's Ben, if you're new here and you don't know me. Hello, nice to meet you. Uh, hey, <laughs> oh, y'all are so welcoming. I love this. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at church and uh, we are right in the middle uh, of our series called That You May Believe, where this summer we're gonna go through the book of John and not just uh, the whole book of John, because that would take more, than what, uh, more time than what we have this summer. But we're specifically gonna go through the seven miraculous signs of Jesus recorded in the book of John. And so uh, I love what Matt shared with us last week um, as he helped us to intro the series. And he told us that Matthew focuses on what Jesus said, Matthew being the book of Matthew, because there are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. These are, the, these are the only four books in the Bible that tell us the story of what Jesus did in his ministry. So Matthew focuses on what Jesus said. Mark focuses on what Jesus did. Luke focuses on what Jesus felt. And John focuses on who Jesus is. And that's why we're studying the book of John this summer. We learned that Jesus was the word of God that was made flesh and lived here on earth among us. So he is God in the flesh. Jesus is divine. And so we see in John chapter 20, verses 29, it says, then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so that's you and me. We are blessed because we didn't get the opportunity to see the things that John and the rest of the disciples got to see they saw it, that caused belief. We don't get to see it. So we are more blessed because we believe even though we haven't seen. Verse 30, it says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. As a matter of fact, John said that the world couldn't contain the books. If you were to try to write down everything that Jesus did, the world couldn't contain it. He did record just seven, almost did six. He recorded seven miracles of Jesus. And um, I think it's kind of a bummer for me because I wish I knew all the things that Jesus did. Like, I wanna know it all. I wanna know everything that he did. But because he only gave us seven, we have to understand that because even though this just scratches the surface, these are really important. There's something he wants us to see um, in each one of these signs. And so verse 31, here's the reason, but these are written, these seven, these teachings recorded in this book, these are written, that you may believe. That's where we got our title right there. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John wants you to have life through believing in Jesus. So what exactly is it that John wants us to believe? If we back up to chapter one and verse 11, it says, he came to that which was his own. Jesus came to his own people, but his own did not receive him. And this word here means uh, associate with oneself. They did not accept him. They did not even associate with him. Verse 12 says, yet to all who did receive, and even though in our English language, these are both the same word, they're actually two different words. In the Greek, this one, this word receive means to take, to lay hold of. And I think about those moments where my kids are playing and it all goes wrong because Kingston reaches over and takes the toy from Shiloh, right? And so, that struck me. I was like, oh yeah, I kind of get it. Like John wants us to not only believe, but to take a hold of this story of Jesus. Take it. Like I want this. And it goes on to say to those who believed, which means to have faith, to entrust in Jesus, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. What does that mean? That's spiritual birth. Remember, Jesus says that you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. John is saying that those that trust and have faith in Jesus and try to grab onto it, like that's mine, I want that, become spiritually born. Believe and receive Jesus, trust and want Jesus. This is where your spiritual life begins. You know, you could believe that Jesus is the son of God and just reject it, not accept it, right? I don't know who in the world would want to do that. Uh, I don't think I've even met that person yet. Uh, but I guess it's possible. You could also receive Jesus. You could accept it and say, oh, I can associate with that. I like that. I accept the teachings of Jesus. Um, but I also accept the teachings of every other religion in the world, right? And John is saying it has to be different from that. It's not just receiving, it's believing and receiving. It has to be both. And so all that's to set up the reason why John was written. And so now time for us to dive into our first of seven signs. Today, we're gonna be in John chapter two. If you wanna go ahead and turn your Bibles there, I may bounce around to a couple of other scriptures, but for the most part, we're gonna be in John chapter two. And I think there's a few things that John wants us to see. Number one, Jesus reveals God's glory. He can do that. You and I can't do that. I can't reveal God's glory to you, but Jesus could, he could do that. Number two, Jesus demonstrates his deity, that he is divine and powerful that he does what only God could do. He creates something new from nothing, right? Number three, when the disciples saw this miracle, when it happened in front of their eyes, they believed. And so John's saying that that should make uh, a difference to us. We should believe. We should just take his word for it, I guess. Uh, it was an eyewitness account. And the fourth thing is that Jesus was giving us a sign that nobody caught in the moment that he would do something new in the place of something old when it was the right time. So he was gonna establish a new covenant. He's pointing to this in this miracle. So here we are, John chapter, chapter two. Uh, I want you to uh, just close your eyes. I want you to try to put yourself in the story just to, just to try to visualize it for a second. Um, you've, you've gotten an invitation in the mail. Uh, some friends of yours or family um, I've invited you to come to a wedding. So you've gone out and you've picked a dress. You've got your suit cleaned, your shoes shined up, whatever it is. You've made the trek. You've made a journey. You're there at the wedding. And then here we are in the story. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used for the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best until now. 
What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day and this opportunity to be together, to open up the Bible and to look at the miracle of Christ and simply ask that you would help us to understand uh, what it is you would like for us to know and what it is you would like for us to do. Would you open our eyes and would you open our ears to hear uh, the teaching here? It's in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so John chapter two, let's break it down real quick, just a few things. So verse one, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So weddings uh, back then were not like weddings of today. As a matter of fact, if I yawn right now, please forgive me, I am so tired. I worked a wedding last night with my wife and I got like three hours of sleep, so I am exhausted. Uh, Combined, we did 42,000 steps yesterday. We walked 18 and a half miles, yeah. Man, (laughs) I'm here. Yeah, maybe you're like me, like you just made it. You're doing good just to be here. Um, But anyway, that was just a five-hour wedding. That was, the ceremony started at five, and we started striking things at 10 o'clock, five hours. Weddings back then, the wedding ceremony would have been fairly short, but the celebration lasted for days, if not a week. They liked to celebrate at weddings. And we see that Jesus' mother and Jesus and his disciples, they were guests. This wasn't their wedding. This wasn't uh, something they were responsible for. They were guests. Verse three says, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Why did Mary come to Jesus and and say this? Um, It's believed that perhaps Jesus' family were, uh, were close friends, maybe even close or distant relatives, Um, to the groom. And so it would have been really embarrassing for the family, the whole family, if you were to run out of wine. Um, And so another thing I'm thinking is like, why why didn't she go to Joseph? You know, because there's kind of like a hierarchy in the family. And it's actually believed that that Joseph uh, was not living anymore. You know, we see that Joseph is in the beginning of Christ's life. Like we see that recorded in the gospels. We see mention of Joseph, but then we don't hear really anything else about it. So we know that Jesus was a carpenter's son, right? And often the the older son or the son would take on the profession of the father. And so Jesus, the carpenter's son, it's likely because Joseph has already passed away. Jesus is the oldest son, right? He was the firstborn of Mary. And so she would have come to him being like that person in the family. Um, So she came to him and I always thought that, I mean, Mary knew that Jesus was divine, right? but I always thought it's because she knew that he would miraculously do something, right? But what we see in this story is that this is the first son. This is his first miracle. I don't think she really thought that he would just poof, here's some wine. I think she was just simply trying to save the family from some shame. And so verse four, she comes, uh, Jesus answers, he says, woman, why do you involve me? And I just, when I hear that, and I heard some people chuckle, I was like, would you talk to your mom that way? You know, like, no, I would, that would be so disrespectful. Um, but I don't think Jesus is being dishonoring to his mother. He can't be because he didn't break the law that he perfectly upheld. And the law says that you have to honor your mother and father, right? So this must not be dishonoring. So what is it here? Uh, a better translation would be, ma'am, 
what is it to you or to me? Or you can say, ma'am, this isn't our responsibility. Like we're just guests here. Um, But Jesus replies, my hour has not yet come. Where was his mind? You know, what was he thinking when he was approached with this problem? And, you know, as I watched uh, the wedding yesterday and as I saw the celebration yesterday, I'm thinking of my bride. I'm thinking of the moment where I got married. And if you're ever at a wedding, you probably remember the moment where you got married. Or if you haven't been married, you're probably thinking, oh, I wonder what that's going to be like one day when I meet that person and I get married. So I'm wondering if Jesus' mind is on his bride while he's at this celebration. And we know that his bride in Ephesians 5 and Revelation 19 is the church. His bride was you, his bride was me. So his mind, maybe, perhaps, I think so, was on us, and then he's just presented this problem. His mother said to the servant, she didn't even acknowledge it. She didn't respond back to Jesus. I think it just went just like right over her head. Um, She just looked at the servants in panic mode, because I saw panic mode yesterday. (laughs) Um, she says, do whatever he tells you. And so they don't make it complicated. They don't ask questions. They simply trust Jesus. And so verse six, it says, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So Jesus seizes the opportunity. You know, he's thinking about this and he sees the jars. He's like, ah, I'm, gonna, I'm about to do something here. So he seizes the opportunity to reveal his power and his divine nature. But He's going to show us a sign of the whole reason that he came to this earth. And that was to do something new in the place of something old. He was going to start a new covenant. So the stone pots represent the law, the Old Testament, the way things have been. And Jesus is about to do something new. He's going to change it. So verse 7, it says, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. He didn't say, hey, just put a little water in the jars. He didn't say, hey, bring me what you got that, that's left and collected it, kind of like the fish and the loaves and then blessed it and then there was enough for everybody. No, he said, fill them up. And we know that this becomes wine, right? And the cool thing is that throughout the Old Testament, we see that overflowing jars are a picture of God's abundant provision. Look at Proverbs 3. And this is just one of many references. There's way too many that you could mention Uh, in the short time we have together. But Proverbs 3, verse 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. He doesn't just provide a little bit. He doesn't just provide enough. When God provides, he provides more than enough. He provides in abundance. John 2, verse 8, let's continue the story. He says, he told them, Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you saved the best until now. So I did the math here because I had to. I had to know exactly how much wine is this, right? And so if you look at the 20 to 30 gallon pots, six stone jars, uh, you do the math. This is somewhere between 605 and 908 bottles of wine. Like this is a lot of wine. Um, <laughs> that's crazy to me. Uh, wine Spectator, top 100 for last year. They're, they're rating. I was looking for, okay, what is like the newest 
yet best wine, the wine that could not be beaten, so that if you did bring out like the good wine first, but then this one came out, you would say, oh, why did you save the best for last, okay? And so this wine was about $32 a bottle. So we're talking, if that's the case, we're talking between twenty dollars and $30,000 worth of wine. Like, why? Why did Jesus provide so much wine here? Nathan Finocchio of Theosu says this about wine in the Old Testament, because it always represented something. The presence and abundance of wine is associated with the blessings of the covenant, the blessings of the covenant. And so we know the Old Testament covenant is this, God promises to Abraham that you will become a great nation and that through this nation, the whole world will be blessed. So just like this new wine was better than the first wine, Jesus is showing us that the new covenant will be better than the first one. And the abundance of this new wine represents of how much of a blessing this is gonna be. It's gonna bless the whole world. You know, another thing that's cool here, I just really like this. Jesus displays his nature of creation. Because remember, um, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. We see the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is that word. He was present in creation at the beginning. And we know that when Adam was created, it said that even though he was new, he had the appearance of a grown man. And so I've always wondered, like if you were to take a tree in the garden of Eden and you were to cut it down, would it have just one ring because it was within its first year or would it have a lot of rings? I mean, we don't know, but I would think that, you know, even though that tree was one day old, it was a fully grown tree. Even though Adam was one day old, he was a fully grown man. And so when Jesus made wine, it took on the characteristics of a fully aged, great, better than the rest, wine. Check out this reference in Isaiah 25. In my Bible, the title over the top, and I thought this was awesome, it says, God will swallow up death forever. And this is Isaiah's prophecy of when God comes and fulfills everything and restores things back to how it should be. In verse six, it says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And Mount Zion is the mountain that is talking about here. And that is symbolic of Jerusalem or the church. And Jesus is telling us here is that that time has come. That time is right now. The well-aged wine is here. You're seeing it right in front of your eyes. And the kingdom that you've been waiting for is right here. So what happened? What did this do? Verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed him. They didn't know the extent to what they had just seen. They didn't catch all the symbolism or the fulfilled prophecies. They just literally saw water that became wine. And that was enough for them. It's like, oh my gosh, if you can do that, I'm following this guy. And they believed and followed him. So in summary, all right, I think this is important. In the moment that Jesus was thinking about his hour, his bride, his blood, which he would have to give in order to gain his bride, which the wine represents. He chose to show us in his first miracle what he came to earth to do, to do something new and better than what had already been in place. He came to change things. Jeremiah 31 
Verse 31, it says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them out, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. It's going to be different. It's not gonna look the same. I'm gonna change things and it's gonna be different. There's gonna be a new covenant. How is it gonna be different? Verse 33 says, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. 650 years before Jesus, Jeremiah is telling us that it's no longer gonna be a promise between God and a nation. It's going to look different. It's not gonna be the same as the old covenant. It is gonna be a promise between God and an individual. It's gonna be personal. How? This is through our spiritual birth. Remember, Jesus said, you can't enter the kingdom unless you're born again. And it was through Jesus' death that the Holy Spirit was made available for the first time to indwell and to live inside of us. And that's how God reveals and teaches us his law in our minds and in our hearts. It's a new kind of relationship, a new covenant. And the miracle of the wine was pointing to the moment where Jesus would do this. So when did Jesus do this? When was this hour? This hour was at Passover. And so Passover was, was a festival, but it also was a meal. And so if you know anything about um, the Exodus or you know, in the book of Exodus, the children of Israel are slaves. They've been slaves and you know, Moses goes to Pharaoh, hey, let my people go. God told, told them to do all this. But the very last plague, God says, I'm gonna require the firstborn of all the land the firstborn of all humans, the firstborn of all animals. He's gonna come through and he's gonna claim them. But he told the children of Israel, if you'll slaughter a lamb and you'll take the blood and you'll smear it over your door, when I come at night, I'm gonna pass over and you'll be saved. And so this Passover festival was remembering that God remembered them and saved them and brought them out of slavery and into freedom. So what about Jesus in the Passover? What do we know? Luke 2.41 says, every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. So from the day Jesus was born, moving forward to this point in time, he went to Passover every single year. Numbers 9.13 tells us that if you did not celebrate Passover, you were cut off from Israel. That was God telling us that. Deuteronomy 16 says that every male was required to attend. So, we could assume or we would know that Jesus and his disciples, all of their lives, because they weren't cut off from Israel, every single year celebrated Passover. They knew the customs, they knew the meal, they knew what it meant, they knew what it represented, and it was central to their faith. Jesus celebrated two Passovers before this last one we're gonna talk about. In John chapter 2, 13, this is his first one, it says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So this is after this miracle we just talked about. He has disciples at this point, And so he probably leads his disciples in this Passover meal, remembering God for what he did in Exodus. John 6, 4, it says the Jewish Passover uh, festival was near. So this is the second one. And we see that Jesus then travels to Jerusalem again. They would have to go uh, on a journey. John 13, 1, it says it was just before the Passover festival, but this one was gonna be different. This is when he changed everything. This was the hour that he was referencing. This is the hour he was thinking about 
in the water to wine miracle. So this hour, John 13, 1, it says, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Luke 22, 14 says, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. At this Passover, Jesus does something that the disciples never expected. Luke twenty-two nineteen, and he has a piece of bread. It says he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so what he should have said probably would have been along the lines of, do this in remembrance of what God did in Egypt like we've been doing for over 1,500 years, like we've done together the past three years, like you've done your whole life. Now do this in remembrance of me. And I don't know if his disciples completely understood it in the moment, but they didn't question it. They didn't say, why, Jesus? Oh, no, you're you're breaking the the traditions of, of what we've celebrated forever. To them, he had the authority to do it. So they just went along with it. He was changing things. In verse 20, of Luke 22, it says, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. You know, he should have said something like, this cup, this wine represents maybe the blood that was put over the doorpost as they remember and they would retell the story of the Exodus. But he doesn't say that. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Matthew 26 says it this way, this is, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So that year at that Passover, at that hour, Jesus became our Passover lamb, slaughtered for you and me for the forgiveness of sins. And John the Baptist knew this from the very beginning because he said, John 1, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he did it for you and he did it for me. The wine and the miracle represents his blood shed in overwhelming abundance, overflowing over the brim so that there would never be need for any more, for the forgiveness of sin, for all sin, for the sin that was past, present, or future. That's why when he was on the cross, he said, it is finished. There need not be any more blood. His was enough, more than enough. So John wants us to believe and receive Jesus for eternal life. John wants you to have this life because Jesus gave up his so that you could have yours. So I want to ask you, what do you believe about Jesus? Have you received him? John 1, I want to go back to this verse, John 1, 12, it says, but to all who believed him, and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. You know, I think if you ask John, why? Why believe Jesus? You know, he would tell you that he's the light of the world. He is God in the flesh, handing out life to you. He's the savior. He would tell you to receive it, take hold of it, believe it, grab onto it. It's yours for the taking. Put your trust in it. You know, if you've never done this in your life and you realize in this moment, that's what you need. 
that you want it, you want to believe and receive Jesus as your savior today, right where you sit, I wanna invite you to do that. Romans 9, sorry, Romans 10, 9 says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So right where you sit, can I ask everyone to bow your heads?